hppodcraft.com. Hello, folks. Welcome back to our coverage of The Hospice by Robert Aikman. This is the second half of a conversation we had with our guest, writer Jeremy Dyson. This episode also features readings by Greg Johnson. So sorry for the abrupt break in last week's episode. Eventually, we're going to stitch the whole conversation back together and release it on our YouTube page so that it's easier to consume in one great big gulp. When last we left off, our protagonist had wandered into an odd hotel called The Hospice after losing his way home and is being treated to massive amounts of food in a very hot banquet hall filled with people who consume their food lustily and mostly silently. We were just talking about the waitress who is so enraged that the protagonist is not eating all of his food that she actually sweeps the dishes to the floor. A loss of temper. Again, which is part funny, but also part terrifying because that breaking of social conventions is often a very scary thing. It's very unsettling. This story does this a lot. And I think that that's the nature of his writing. I think, okay, this is the point that it's going to shift. This is going to be the point. This She's done something. She's broken this rule. I done this thing. Okay, so now he's going to realize he's he's in some weird dungeon or these people are going to kill him or something. Typical weird fiction kind of story. But then the manager comes up, Faulkner, and just says, oh, I'm sorry about this. And then it gets back to normal again. She's got problems. We're really sorry about this. We'll clean it up. And it's like, okay, it's not what I thought it was going to be. And the story just keeps doing that. It keeps taking you to the edge and you think, okay, here we go. And then, nope, we're bringing you right back again to the, which is really unsettling. Because he gets off the hook at that point. When that disaster's happened, you know what? We'll give you some coffee, go to the lounge. And then as he's going to the lounge, Mayberry notices something much more curious. A central rail ran the length of the long table a few inches above the floor. To this rail, one of the male guests was attached by a fetter around his left ankle. This is the, this is a major turning point because whatever's happened up until this point, can sort of have an explanation you know even yeah. even the waitress losing her temper you know maybe she's just having a bad day or, and you know it could could sort of be accountable for but there's no accounting for the guests being chained <laughs> <I know. laughs> it's a new concept there's no possible yeah. farm to table or else one guy is chained to it that he sees that he can so, see that he can yeah, see but, yeah but but what if it is just the one guy? Why is this one guy chained up? Why are the other people not? If that's what's going on as well. Like, there's just so many questions. Nothing gets answered and you just get moved on to the next part of the story. But it's worth as well just passing comments on the brilliance of Aikman here because these details are all strange, but none of them are arbitrary. You know, everything feels, it sort of has its own weird internal logic, even though it's impossible to discern what there's. A bit like David Lynch, you know, it's like there's not many people who can do that without it just being annoying or, or, Mm -hmm. you know, or stupid. But it's like in the way that a dream has its own consistent logic and everything in a dream belongs in a dream, these are like Aikman's dreams. Everything belongs there. Each of these choices is is sort of immaculate. It feels like that that's a real thing that's really happening. I don't understand it. I'm not privy to the insights to, to this whole situation, but it would make sense if I just knew, if I was able to yeah. cross over into that world, but I can't. And that's why it's anybody could just do weird, random stuff, yeah. right. but it, it'll feel weird and random. This doesn't feel weird and random. I mean, it is weird, but it feels like, oh, wait, I'm getting a glimpse of this bigger picture, but I, I can't see enough of it to put it all together. And that's what feels really great about the story. Yeah. The famous Bob Dylan lyric from Ballad of a Thin Man. There's something going on here. I just don't know what it is. <laughs> and that, that's the trick. That yeah. This is, there's something going on. 
<laughs> How do you do that without having any story there at all? It's it's a hard, hard, hard thing to do that Lynch does and a few people are very good at. This is not random. No, it's, it's. I mean, and who knows what his process was? I mean, he he wrote very carefully. He, you know, his output is fairly small. He, there's only, there's less than 50 published stories written over 30 odd years. And so, you know, he obviously took a lot of time over these stories and who knows how, how much revision there was and I, I think he was very careful I mean you know I'm sure he was instinctive but I'm also I also feel that he was a, a very good editor of himself as well mm. he's in this lounge that middle-aged woman that he saw before the attractive one comes in followed by that young guy that initially let him in and her name is Cecile she says that she's related to this uh Shaman, Shamanade, Shamanade, the French, uh, Cecile Shamanade, who was a French composer and pianist, um, who was a, a awarded, first woman to be awarded the Legion of Honor for a female composer. Do, what's the significance of that? Is this a ghost of somebody I thought or uh, what's going on? I, I don't know, again, whether that's just a, a, one of his odd details that he just throws in that feels right. But again, it feels right. It makes it because it's, there's such specificity to it. It yeah. makes everything feel real. It does. And, and then it also naturally flows into conversation because he says, oh, well, I have a famous relation. I'm related to this person, Solway Short, who I think is fictional, but who's a racing motorist that this person definitely would have seen in the newspaper. This is somebody who they would know who it is if, if she was connected to the modern world. And she has no idea who it is. She says, I don't watch television. So I feel like maybe it isn't significant. It was just a way to get to this point, which is that this person is very out of time you know, outside of time. She explains about the hospice only that people come for the rest, they come for the food, that the tremendous amount of food is necessary. It's the restorative, you might say, she says. And he, he actually says, do you come here often? <laughs> Just funny. She says, life would be impossible otherwise. All these people in the world without enough food, living without love, without even proper clothes to keep the cold out. What is she getting at? I mean, there's some sort of, this is a, a place where the wretched can go, the place where people can go as a refuge from the cruel world. It's funny because you just naturally think, is he dead and he's in some kind of heavenly place or something? But that yeah. just seems way too... I think the key line there is probably living without love. Uh, you know, this is something obviously, well, it's going to play out from, from here and into the end of the story. Maybe makes, uh, there are references to his marriage and the state of his marriage and and, the, and sex, of course, comes in. And, and, and sex was a big deal for Aikman and never straightforward, always complicated, always inscrutable dangerous and never straightforward and and this this is this what's going what happens next is uh, is very much part of a consistent thing with him well she begins seducing mayberry who seems like he might be up for it although he is married like you said but still he's bothered because that guy that young man the cherub-faced dude is just standing around <laughs> in the room with them and she tells him oh that's vincent he looks like a greek god but he's impotent what does that have to do with anything <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't change the fact that I don't want a dude standing around while we're going to, you know, I'm going to cheat on my wife with you. You know, it's But it's there crazy. will be no visual arousal. How do you not get that? That's what makes it cool. <laughs> this, it adds to it. How does she know Vincent's impotence as well? You know, there's, there's yeah. so much in those few lines, so much implication. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, eventually, all the other people come rolling in, and the romance has to stop. But she tells Mayberry she's in room 23. And then Faulkner comes in and says, to bed, all of you. And they just go. It's 10 o'clock at night. 
It's very, I don't think I've stayed in a hotel that has that kind of thing going on. <laughs> even, even an English one. No, you can't get any food after 10 o'clock. Mayberry asks Faulkner if there's anywhere nearby to get petrol, and he says there isn't, but they could siphon off some of the gas from one of their cars. Faulkner goes with him to move his car closer to where the cars are, but when Mayberry gets into the car, the strange thing happens. He, he blanks on how to start his car. He just has that moment where he, how do I start my car? I just mm. To me, this is the scariest thing in the whole story. This is the moment that I can remember really got well, me when I read it. As a middle-aged man, I could relate to this. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of these things where you're like, I just feel myself slipping as I, the older I get little things at, at a time. Or the other day, I have the same password on my computer for the last five years. I just couldn't remember it because it was second nature to me. I just would type it without even thinking about it. Mm. And I couldn't Ooh, remember. Yeah. I had to sit for a few few minutes, it felt like hours, to try and remember what that password was. And eventually it did come to me and the moment passed. But when that happens in that story, it feels real to me. Well, and also it's the, it's the you know, it's, it's an exaggeration because it's one thing to remember a, a phrase or a word or the name of a song or somebody's name, but to mm. not remember how to start a car. Yes. Is a whole other level of, you know, well, be it senility or whatever. And when I first read it again, you know, as a young man, it had a weirdly, I made a sexual association. It was, a, it was like sort of not knowing what to do in bed. Huh. Mm. And I don't know why that was. And maybe it's because it comes on the back of that incident of failed seduction. It's a, it was an odd, a, you know, and that might have just been my reading of it. But there's something very strange. It's it's more than just premature senility. It's mm. in that detail. You know, whatever's made him go for it, it's he's unraveling. I think there's the everyday anxiety of it, because even when I was, I remember being in high school and forgetting my locker combination, even though you've filled it in every day. And then the panic that sets in, maybe I'll never have access to this again. I also think that he could have said, I wanted to open the door, but I was too weak to do it, which is a very common feeling you have when you're in dreams and nightmares. But it's like he skipped past the thing that would be a more conventional way to describe it and went to this. So that by the time you read it and process it, you've had the feeling without being able to attach it to an existing schema. It, it was just such a great yeah. way to get around and make me feel that weakness in a new way. Yeah, and also, you know, the, the not being able to start the motor, not being able to escape, not having lost control. It's There's yeah. so many associations with that that show you what a fine writer Aikman is in that choice of detail, because there's so much meaning in that. But it's open, but not entirely open. You know, again, it sits with everything else that's going on, going on. And there's this creepy workman, Krami, who's big and bulging, and he moves the car for him. He can get it to work so they can get it close to the big vehicle they're going to siphon petrol from. Of course, that's the moment when the hotel manager remembers, oh, that runs on diesel. But what was the deal with this guy, Krami? He says his work is usually on a big scale, so the car detail might be hard for him. He's got these big yellow misshapen hands. He seems very monstrous. I mean, that seems a sort of emasculation thing going on there, that he's, oh, a, he's yeah. a big man and... Again, there's the sexual thing going on. He's a, The handyman's a big man and Mayberry feels his feet. He even says, oh, you're too much. You're working that too hard. You're too abrupt with it. You're too, oh, and right. he gets it working and it's fine. Now, Mayberry has to spend the night at the hospice. They also have no phone there, so he can't call his wife. Again, very odd, but not supernatural. It's not crossing over that line, at least for me, it's not. No, it's not, no. it's And, and you know, in the nine, early 1970s, Certainly in the UK, the workplaces didn't have phones. I mean, not businesses, as Maybury yeah. goes on to say. It's ridiculous that a business couldn't have a phone. But, you know, certainly private houses, there was, it wasn't like everybody had a telephone, but not, no. not, not then. So, so it's just about, yeah, there's a line of plausibility there that 
uh, is very strange, but not supernatural, as you say. The room that he's going to have to have at this place is shared. All the rooms are shared in this place. And he's going to have to room with this guy, Bannard. Which, more anxiety, right? Having to st- share a yeah. room with a stranger? And and isn't oh, Bannard God. already in his pajamas? Or does he go and put his pajamas on? There's some odd <laughs> intimacy there. He's got to borrow pajamas from this guy oh, who's right, apparently yes. stayed there so long that he's got a drawer full of them. And they're all the same, folded neatly. What's going on? You know? <laughs> and then he, he, he actually, for the first time, looks at his injury, thankfully. Uh, it's a huge gash with dried blood. At that moment, I went, oh, yes. Now, how did I? It's credible that I forgot the injury because I'm reading the story. How did he forget about it while he was eating? With all well, there's been a lot going on, so you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, not, but Bannard doesn't want to see that injury. He says it is bad for me to see things like that. It really seems to upset his roommate. I mean, there's more infantilizing going on, isn't there? Because they're they're now like little boys in a shared bedroom, oh, either yeah. a, school, a school dormitory, or it's got that sort of feel to it, and so that's very odd. And yeah, unsettling. Well, I mean, he's a middle-aged man as well. He's very nice, mm-hmm. this Bannard, but a little creepy in a way that you can't quite your, put your finger on. They put out the lights and Bannard sneaks out. Maybury began to wonder whether something had gone wrong with his own time faculty, such as it was. Something that is of medical significance. That whole evening and night, from soon after his commitment to the recommended route, he had been in doubt about his place in the universe about what people called the state of his nerves. Here was evidence that he had good reason for anxiety. Then, from somewhere within the house, came a shattering, ear-piercing scream, and then another, and another. It was impossible to tell whether the din came from near or far, still less whether it was female or male. Maybury had not known that the human organism could make so loud a noise even in the bitterest distress. It was shattering to listen to, especially in the enclosed, hot, total darkness. And this was nothing momentary. The screaming went on and on, a paroxysm, until Maybury had to clutch at himself, not to scream in response. I mean, that's horrible. A a scream so loud, you didn't know a human could make it, no matter how great the distress. It's just such a horrible detail because because what caused it, and then yeah. and, and who you know who is source of the screen. Yeah. Uh, and what do you do? What is your responsibility to yeah. investigate, solve, yeah. find out, report? But it? also, when something like that happens, other people respond. He's in a hotel full of people. He should be hearing people running around in the halls. He should hear clamoring, talking, like what's going on? People shouting. Nothing. He doesn't hear anything besides that. Again, there's a, there's a sex there's a sexual undercurrent as well that you can't you know one thing if you if you've ever been in a hotel room and heard people having sex next door, <laughs> yeah. it's an you know it's an alarming thing. And, and if we think about the infantilism, you know, if you were a child and you were to hear people having sex next door in a hotel room, that must occasionally happen. What would you make of it? Again, the richness of the associations that, that are in there. Now, why haven't I seen that scene anywhere, though? Because if I was a kid and I was in a hotel room, I would definitely be with my parents. So do we all sit there and listen to the sex happening in the next room <laughs> well, that's, together? That's, you're right. That's a great scene. That is a good scene. <laughs> Aikman missed a trick there. He should have put that scene in there somehow. <laughs> now, Mayberry tries to turn on the light, but it doesn't work. He tries to open the door, but it's locked. He goes to open the curtains, but no light comes in. 
that's another scary high point for me because it's so nightmarish when he opens the curtains and there's just wall behind them yes that's horrible horrible thing the claustrophobia of it and it feels very dreamlike yeah. you're trying to do something simple like turn on a light get out of a room open up a window and <laughs> nothing is working these things aren't happening yeah. now he's not sure if bannard is a killer or not but he hears him come back in and he could smell cecile's perfume on him and then Bannard, he stands by Mayberry's bed. Mayberry's thinking, is he going to kill me now? Is that what's going to happen? No, he just wants to talk. He turns on the light, which now works. And Mayberry notices that Bannard looks older, like years older and also just kind of different. It's as if he's played by a different actor. You know, if this was an yeah. adaptation, it would be now a different actor. I mean, and there's a, that's terrifying. And a classic Aikman detail. It's sort of a simple detail, but I can't think of anything, any other story I've read where that has anything like that in it. Somebody changing, even though they're still apparently the same person. From perhaps in the Magus, there's a bit of that going on in the John Fowles novel. But, you know, it's it's just so troubling on, on every level. And of course- On every level. On every level. And, and he's come back now and he's turned into, there's a, a little scene that follows that's a bit like the Monty Python nudge nudge sketch, where Bannard starts asking oh. him queasy details about his wife. Mm-hmm. Asking, uh, yeah. is, is she Animal pretty? Yeah. Yes, it's, it's all exactly that. Yeah. The, but this part here with this, it was interesting on so many levels because he drops a detail here about Maybury that he has some level of face blindness, perhaps. When he was younger at school, he couldn't tell other boys apart from one another and he kept it on the down low. He would just do what he had to do to get through those situations. And luckily it never caused too great an embarrassment to him, although some. So this could entirely be because of some condition that he doesn't, report to other people that he knows he has. It seems that he's ashamed about, even though it's out of his control, which goes into the next thing, which is I think we all have a ton of anxiety based around identifying people, getting somebody's name wrong, not knowing them, even though they've introduced themselves to you. (sighs) And so him coming back in the way that he expresses, I think he's a different guy. But maybe I just wasn't paying attention before. Again, it's like with running the car. These are things that I should be able to do and I can't. And maybe it's my own weakness. And so there's this level of shame in everything in here about the, I thought that part was so interesting. And then throw into that the fact that this change has happened whilst he's heard the loudest scream he's ever heard a human being make. Uh Mm-hmm. So uh, there's obviously some connection, as you've already said. You know, is it that Ballard's a murderer? But if he's a, if he's, why is he changed? And who is it that screamed? And you know, was it the, was it yeah. the first Ballard that screamed? And now the now this other one is an imposter that's replaced him? Or it's and it gets back to we actually just covered uh, the Sandman, the E.T.A. Hoffman story, in which there's a lot of use made of doppelgangers right. and people who look similar who show up again with a different name, and then and we brought in how Freud wrote about that in his essay, The Uncanny, how knowing somebody but not knowing them is that core of the uncanny feeling. Uh, Unfriendlich. It's another, these German word, Germans have the (laughs) concepts for all of this stuff, it it appears. Or unhomely, I think is what the translation is. Unheimlich, yeah. Unheimlich, that's what it is. I'm not unfriended or whatever I just said. But but again, that idea is coming up of something being familiar and yet totally unfamiliar as as a, just such a unique mental state to be in and, and one that produces a lot of terror. He asks Bannard about the scream and he says, oh, I didn't hear anything, which is obviously insane because it was so crazy <laughs> loud. 
Uh, they have this strange little conversation about the hospice and about how hot Mayberry's wife is, like you were saying before, which really doesn't give us any insight, but is just kind of off-putting. Then Mayberry just wants to go back to sleep, and Bannard agrees. He goes, okay, let's go back to bed. Now, in the morning, they're both served tea in their room. Bannard looks like the younger original Bannard, now in the light of day. Mayberry wants to to get the heck out of there. And Faulkner explains that, well, unfortunately, there's been a death in the hotel and he doesn't want anybody to know about it because guests don't want to be upset by this kind of thing. They want a pleasurable experience. So he waves all the charges on the room and board because Mr. Mayberry has been put at an inconvenience. And Faulkner arranges for Mayberry to leave with the hearse that's going to be taking out the body. <laughs> Mayberry was compelled to travel with the coffin itself because there simply was not room for him on the front seat, where a director of the firm, a corpulent man, had to be accommodated with the driver. The nearness of death compelled a respectful silence among the company in the rear compartment, especially when a living stranger was in the midst, and Maybury alighted unobtrusively when a bus stop was reached. One of the undertaker's men said that he should not have to wait long. It's such a great last line. <laughs> <laughs> now, this was the first Aikfit story I read. So when I got to the end, I go, huh? What, this is the end? <laughs> <laughs> the, the traditional lending. I got to say, by the way, we, we glossed over it, but the breakfast was immense as well. And when it was described, I know, you know, I grew up in the 70s. People ate weird stuff. Lots of gelatinous molds with things in them and things. But this all sounded disgusting to me. And they finished up the breakfast with a giant apple pie with ice cream. And even Americans <laughs> don't eat that for breakfast. <laughs> Thank God he got out of there. Although to where, I don't know. Well, that's I mean, the thing. Is, this... is it a happy ending? Is it a sad ending? I mean, it's... Is it? Well, he's escaped and he's alive. Or is he? <laughs> well, again, you can ask that question. Yeah. I, I don't know. That's what's cool about this. Yeah, that's, that's right. But it's still satisfying. I mean, it's amazing for it to be so open, and yet it's satisfying. It does, I'm, you know, it completely satisfied me on, well, each time I read it, but certainly on first reading, even though it was obviously opaque. <laughs> you'd be hard pushed to say what had happened. There's a very satisfying thing of closure in that last line. Mm. I know you can look at it the one way where it's just this kind of brush with an unusual situation. And, you know, one of these things that you'll tell stories about for the rest of your life, you go, man, I stay at this place called the hospice. It was nutty. Or it's as like he had died at some point and this is him going through some sort of purgatory or, or death process yeah. and that he is moving on. Like he's the one in that coffin being taken away, but he doesn't realize that he's dead. Either ending is plausible and or any other third or fourth ending that you might want to think of. But I feel like that that Aikman is writing that line so perfectly that it's mm. satisfying either way. There's a Conrad Aiken story we covered called Mr. Arcularis that is a little similar to this one that we oh, liked yeah. a lot. Remember, where's the guy that takes the boat trip? And then um, this reminded me of the Robert Chambers story where he's in the hearse and the where the hearse is passing by every day, too. It's that room for one more uh, yeah, urban yeah, legend, yeah. I think, that's yeah. being played on a little bit here in the end. Um, but again, it's an end. You read it and you go, yeah, that's the end. I mean, that should be the end. That seems right as the end. Yeah. I don't know why. If you go for the, you know, he's still alive and he's somehow going back to his his life nothing's going to be the same for him again. It's, he's 
he's changed mm. his encounter yeah. has changed no. and we understand why we've been shown this episode in his life of all the episodes in Mabry's life that we could have been shown this is probably the most profound thing that's happened to him mm. and that's why the story is being told and that makes perfect sense yeah. and I like the idea I, I think it's wonderful if it's sort of a metaphor for death and that process but I love the idea of him returning to his life after I mean because when you've had inexplicable things like this happen to you especially if you were by yourself nobody was with you to experience this yeah it, it stays in your mind you can't nobody knows what you went through you have things mm. you can't it will bother him for the rest of his life and, and it actually can lead to some larger scale changes in how you approach the world and this is this is another thing about Eggman is it for all of the strangeness is that he's also recording a kind of experience that that people have if not in the details in the feeling because not so long ago well it's probably about what 15 years ago um I got a call from Mark Gatiss it was like it was a weekend and he rang me in a terrible state and he sounded awful and I, I said what's the matter where are you I've gone away for the weekend. He'd gone to a place in Northumberland called um, uh, Almuth, which is a little coastal town. And you pass it on the train from, when you get on the train from London to Edinburgh, and it looks really pretty and really beautiful. And Northumberland is, a, is very beautiful. And he'd always wanted to go and stay. So he'd, he'd just taken himself off there on his own one weekend. And he said the whole experience was as if he'd walked into an Aikman story because he, he thought he'd be able to just turn up and find somewhere to stay and uh -huh. then everywhere was full even though it's like a you know this this very quiet seaside town off season uh-huh but there was nobody there even though everywhere and eventually he found a room above a pub uh, that where they would put him up and he was sitting in this room and this sense of evil he said he couldn't put it any other <laughs> way just came over him just washed over him and he was genuinely terrified um, wow! Something awful was going to happen. Oh, no, he's got—he's no. a man of vivid imagination, but it was a real experience. Sure. Oh yeah, and and Mark, I mean, he's not—that's sure. not the kind of thing that happens to him normally. So you know, the first time I went to London, actually, I had a hotel room in Victoria, and uh, they overbooked. So when I showed up and it was late at night, the woman at the desk was crying. I don't know why. It was a small <laughs> little hotel, and we said, "Hey, we're booked," and she said, oh, "I don't have you down." And we said, "Well, what do we what do we do?" She's like. I'll take you to another hotel. She didn't say anything else to us, still crying. She walked across the street and we followed her, went into another hotel and then she left and we were, are we checked in now? What, what, do they have a relationship together? She didn't tell us anything. I haven't thought of it till just now. That is exactly, was, and, and these are the kinds of things that this, this yeah. brings up. Yeah, and, yeah. and you know, they're, they're real things. Those things happen because other, yeah. other people's lives are so, are so complex, reality is so complex. There are times when you haven't got a clue what's going on <laughs> yeah it honestly reminds me a little if you read any raymond carver oh i love raymond oh well i'm so pleased you said that when i came to carver after aikman i immediately made that connection yeah. oh god it's like non-supernatural aikman yeah, yeah. <laughs> something went on you don't you know something's yeah. happening but you don't know what it is yeah. i mean it's, i, it, I yeah. love carver oh, I absolutely oh great love yeah, yeah we're yeah, big yeah. fans we've not yet been able to cover him on the show because there's no supernatural yeah. affiliation but yeah. um i'm a big evangelist of, of yeah. his yeah. stuff uh speaking of we wouldn't have read this author if we weren't going to have you on the show and i so you've given us a real gift and thank you so much for oh, coming a pleasure on. a pleasure well i'm an evangelist for aikman so i have been 
as you know, for many years. So I'm very happy to do it. Well, I also want to thank our reader, Greg Johnson. You may know him from such wonderful shows as The Mash Report and Class Dismissed. Greg is the guy that's been pushing Aikman on me for the last couple of years. And I've, it's been on the pile. He gave me a book, The Wine Dark Sea. He gave me that collection. It's been on the pile and it just keeps moving down to the bottom of the pile. But once he said, you know what, Jeremy just t- tweeted, the, you know, the top four Aikman stories. And I go, okay, let's let's do this. Let's make this Which happen. Which is great. And, you didn't even know us and you did a month of work for us. I was like, <laughs> awesome. Put them on the schedule. That's a month. <laughs> Done. So thank you, Greg Johnson, for your excellent reading and also for helping make this happen. Well, it's, a, it's been a great pleasure, guys. And um, I'm delighted to come on and do this. And with that, I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. Oh, I'm Jeremy Dyson. I forgot to say. (laughs) (laughs) And you've been listening to Strange Studies of Strange Stories. HPPodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com.